<laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Welcome to Crackle I'm, Quarantine. I'm Mike. I'm Dan. And I'm Vincent. And this is week two of isolation. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, the sadly, the final week of new comic releases until, uh, I don't have no idea. Yeah, because in the meantime, between these two episodes, the uh, comic industry kind of uh, died, sort of, TBD. All right, it's so... die, but... Well, we'll see. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's that. And now I will jump into the show proper, sort of, with our retro book, which is Superman, The Man of Steel, number 36. And I uh, conveniently have it right here, from uh, straight from my complete milestone short boxes this is from august 1994 it's a dc book and the funny thing about this you're not really going to see it very well on uh, the webcam for those watching the video but it is triangle number 29 for the year of 1994 because this is during the triangle era of the superman titles but it's also part 10 of worlds collide so it's kind of funny that you have these two reading order notations and Obviously, the, I don't think the triangle numbers take into account the uh, milestone issues of Worlds Collide. This is by the creative team of Louis Simonson, John Bogdanov. And honestly, there's not much to say about the actual book. Worlds Collide is a crossover between Milestone's four core titles and the Superman line. Milestone was technically an imprint of DC and not a fully independent publisher. There's lots of thought bubbles and footnotes in this issue, for better or worse. I think the footnotes are interesting because some of the footnotes are referring to like the previous one or two issues, which you would not expect as much as like check out this 20 year old book because especially in a Superman book set in this era, because you have the triangle numbers. Like if you're reading Superman, the man of steel, you probably read the last issue of Superman, but it, it's an interesting, you know, part of that era, those two elements. And the plot is that Paris Island, which is like part of the Milestone universe, has been destroyed by a big elemental dude named Rift, who also has a lot of meta elements, or maybe he's crazy and thinks he's meta. And he wants to see Superman Icon fight, which was also sort of like the meta reason for this crossover in a way. Big misunderstanding fight crossover. And they kind of fight, but they're going to, you know, they're kind of, uh, it's kind of like wrestling. They're like, uh, you punch me really hard and I'm going to go flying over here. And they keep getting transported between dimensions, between Metropolis and Dakota and everything like that. And there's a lot of stuff. Again, this is part 10. So I don't know what the hell is going on. That's the actual book. And um, we'll get to our reactions on it further in a second. But I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about some of the creators and stuff because I think there are some interesting parallels at least to my mind. So John Bogdanov basically joined the comics industry right off the bat working with Louis Simonson. He was the second regular ongoing artist on Power Pack after co-creator June Brigman. And that's 1986, so several years before this. And he's basically only worked with her up until now. He did the the uh, spinoff Exterminators during Inferno, some issues of X-Factor, though he did do X-Men Fantastic Four, which had an issue come out this week, but we're not going to talk about it. And by 1991, Simonson is kind of sort of budged out of Marvel. Power Pack was canceled, even though she didn't write the last 20 issues of it, while her two top-selling X-Men books were essentially being taken over 
by her relatively new artistic collaborators who were being backed by Bob Harris, current editor-in-chief of DC. Rob Liefeld kicked her off of New Mutants, literally the issue before Deadpool shows up. So, uh, you know, that was unfortunate because she would have got some royalties and stuff because, uh, you know, Fabian Nicieza did not create Deadpool. I don't care what he says. Rob Liefeld created Deadpool, but she would have got the royalties too instead of him. And Will Sportaccio starts getting some co-writing credits on X-Factor before Claremont tries to reassert control over the line and write some of that. And just a couple months later, she and Bogdanov land at DC and launch this title as the fourth Superman ongoing. And they are joined, they join up with former Marvel editor Mike Carlin, who I'm not going to go too much into him because he's a complicated figure, but he had also been nudged out of Marvel because he was the editor on Fantastic Four and had also picked up writing the Thing solo. And his main, you know, his writer and artist on Fantastic Four, John Byrne, was going to relaunch Superman. And at first, Jim Shooter was like, yeah, sure, you can do both. Continue writing Fantastic Four. And then they're like, no, you can't do that. So Byrne left. And then they're like, uh, Mike Carlin, we hate you now because you let Byrne take on Superman. So Mike Carlin got kicked out and went to the Superman line with Byrne. And Simonson writes Man of Steel for eight years. She's on there. I mean, most of the Superman creators were there a long time in the 90s. Dan Jurgens was there even longer. And this is about a year after the death of Superman, but they're not married yet. So that's some setup on where we're at with Superman, even though there's really none of those details in this book. What did you guys think of 1994 Superman crossing over with Milestone? I mean... I'm always down to read 1990s Superman comics, especially with this creative team. I do think it's funny that in this issue, we see Superman battling an omnipotent giant blue god-like figure 20 years before Doomsday Clock. But yeah, a little hard to follow because like, it's, you know, Triangle Era Part 20. But, you know, it it's it feels like I'm a kid again because I read a lot of these scattered back issues when I was younger. And to me, it didn't matter what number the triangle was. I didn't even know what that triangle meant when I was little. So... I had fun trying to figure out what was going on and looking at all the cliff notes. And the, yeah, the art was always great. I love the colors. It's just a giant fight and pretty fun stuff going on. Like I like this, but I can totally see why someone would not like this. Yeah, kind of just the same things. I mean, I, I, I do like the art definitely stands out. Um, I like this era of comics. You know, I have a lot of stuff over from Marvel that I enjoy reading from this era. So like seeing the DC side of it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I kind of like Super, Superman's look in this book. It's you pretty... like the mullet? Yeah, I like the mullet. I think it works. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, th I think he's very loose. I don't know if that's like he got looser over time or if this is just like a one-off issue based on deadlines and stuff. But Bogdanov is pretty loose in this issue um, compared to like some of his other work that I've seen. But I, I really love his Superman. It's a very unique style. You know, it's, it's definitely not the house style. It, it doesn't look like Dan Jurgens or anything like that. No, but it, it doesn't. But I you... you you stack him against Jurgens, and they both look great in their own way. Yeah. yeah. Strength of the line at that time. And then, of course, I think the one stupid detail I didn't mention in my needless history was that Simonson Bogdanov also launched the Steel spinoff together after Death of Superman, and uh, Steel's in this book very briefly, and Steel has tie-ins to this crossover as well. All right, that is that. Um, I think this was definitely a fun snapshot and it was also it's always interesting when we get placed 
right in the middle of something. And sometimes we can, you know, it still works. And sometimes we're fucking lost. And we, we were kind of in the middle of this because we're still in the era where like, if you read part 10 of a story, it kind of works as a single issue, but it also doesn't. It's, it's interesting when we get these instead of like a number one or something. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So moving over to our new releases for this week, we have 2020 Forceworks number two, written by Matthew Rosenberg and art by Juan Ramirez. The Forceworks has been captured by the army of Deathlocks in the jungle, and they're being basically taken to this uh, cage where other humans are being stored. And Pretty much the status quo for this jungle is that the humans designed all these Deathlocks to counter this huge threat that was coming for this island. And eventually the Deathlocks turned on the humans and now are using the humans to create, to use as parts, like they say. So it's kind of weird. Uh, the Deathlocks end up taking Rhodey to experiment on him to make him a Deathlock. Because, you know, he has his armor as War Machine and stuff. And the rest of the group kind of escapes. But not not soon after, uh, Ultimo actually shows up and starts attacking the Deathlocks on this island. So you have Forceworks trying to escape and, cap and find Rhodey while the Deathlocks are fighting against Ultimo. So that's kind of interesting. We get a scene where Ultimo actually crushes like all these Deathlocks with his foot. So that's kind of funny. But yeah, they, they just kind of fight him off, fight off the Deathlocks, the rest of the, the issue. And Rhodey ends up joining the group and they're like, where, where'd you come from? And he's like, oh yeah, I was saved by Modok, who ends up joining the team. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, Modok obviously is a villain, so I'm kind of curious to see what's going on here but i mean honestly the plot's meh uh the character development's kind of meh as well i don't really know what this has to do with the 2020 iron man event going on but i mean obviously i i think of all the people in the force works that's getting development in this book it's u.s agent which is surprising because i didn't know a lot about him going into this book so kind of interesting to see the different aspects to his character. So, yeah, that's 2020 Force Works for you guys. Or perhaps totally intentional because he's going to be in a TV show soon. Yeah, probably. You're right. All right, so Amethyst number two. There's not a ton to say about this. Written and drawn by Amy Reader. I continue to think uh, art and storytelling is really good. There's a few really good facial expression and like kind of acting moments here. We get a recap of her origin real quick, but there's the continuing thread that her family's reputation is not quite what she's been led to believe, or maybe. She's still on the run with her new friend and the giant caterpillar thing, and they end up on a ship. Then things get really trippy because her, her uh, adoptive Earth parents for her birthday gave her a book about crystals, and it's like crystal healing and all that shit. And she brings it out to joke about it, and they're like, uh, this is funny, and they're laughing at it. And then they try and like enact one of the things that the books tells them to do. And it allows her to actually do something. She enters like a different mind state crystal realm. 
and she figures out that her parents and all of her citizens are trapped by her arch enemy Opal. And then she passes out. To be continued. It's pretty good. Like I said, the art's good. It's fine. Amazing Spider-Man number 42, Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley. So that giant monster we saw them face on the final splash page of issue 41. Turns out he's an old Spider-Man villain named Gog, who I've never heard of before. So no idea if this is a complete insert or... I mean, seems like he's had history with Spider-Man. So I think it, if it's Spencer pulling something out from history, works for me. So Pete, with the help of Reed Richards, thought to have set him back into time into his own dimension. But now he's back in protecting this tablet that him and Boomerang are trying to go after. So they got to fight him. So this whole issue is really just like a basically a, a backstop and showing us the whole history of Gog. It might be the fact that I've just finished reading all of Invincible this week. I, I, I put a post about it. Yeah, I read all of it in five days. Ryan Otley being the you know big main artist on that book for like 60 straight issues and then kind of bouncing around with Corey Walker points. But it felt like an issue of Invincible where Otley was just drawing dinosaurs and aliens. And it was cool like to see the the backstory of like this kind of maimed creature that was wronged in his own dimension and now is back. But I, I it's not a great issue. Like it's fine. It's it's not as good as like the Gibbon issue that we got when Hunted was going on. But it's if you like Ryan Otley art, it's this is a great, great issue. But other than that, it was like it's kind of nothing. Like, all right, backstory on the backstory on Gog. Let's get to the let's get back let's get back to the tablet. But what do you guys think? I looked it up. Gog's first appearance is in Amazing Spider-Man Volume One, numbers number one hundred three, which is the uh, divisive, or at least to some Spider-Man fans, very short Roy Thomas run, and it's a Savage Land arc. And I didn't read this issue, so I will pop myself out. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's just a lot of setup for this character. So, you know, not really much to say other than what you said. But yeah, the story of Gog's kind of sad. Yeah, like, it, it, Spencer's done that before. He makes me care about this character that's very obscure from back in the first 100 batch of issues of Amazing Spider-Man. But I mean, the book continues to be good, right? Like, I'm not going to complain. Yeah, no, it, it will be. So I'm excited. We'll see. So heading into our next book, we have Batman Superman number eight. And this wraps up the second part of the two-part story between Josh Williamson and Nick Darrington with Superman and Batman trying to restore Kandor. This was the final part of the Kandor Compromise, which is the name of the story. Batman, Superman, Ra's al Ghul, and Zod all have to work together to contain the new crazy Kandorians from the Lazarus Pit because they're all crazy, getting transformed from the Lazarus Pit. They're all running at them, but they manage to contain them. But then Zod and Ra's double turn on one another. A uh, great moment where Roz is trying to stand up against General Zod, but Batman just throws a battering at the back of his head and knocks him out, which is pretty good. I will say Nick Derrickson's art, art here was amazing. I loved it. It somehow captures the spirit of like fun Silver Age feel, but still looks like the like an animated series. And for me, those tick the boxes, especially when I'm looking at a world's finest book. Sad he's not sticking around for more than that, but oh well. So as the but Zod and Roz end up fighting still off the off the head off. Superman takes the rest of the Kandorians back to the Fortress of Solitude so he can try to save them. While Batman heads them off, heads Zod and Roz off, and he's able to do that by appealing to Zod's um, inner sense of good because he's uh, appealing to him about what loss does to you. Since you know Batman lost his parents, Zod lost all of Kandor, 
which is where Zod's people are from. So that he's able to put a stop to it there. And Superman at back the Fortress of Solitude with Batman learns that Zod only took half the Kandorians and he has the other half for himself. But Superman has basically sealed them off and cryogenically like put them in stasis until he's able to find a cure for them. And maybe one day they can reunite both halves and put a fix to this. I like this. This was good. Uh, it's everything I'd want out of a Batman Superman world finest team up two issues in great art, great fun, great action takes all my boxes on what I want out of this series, especially after those first six issues where they're fighting Batman laps. And I'll also applaud it for, I thought the destruction of Candor was stupid in the man of steel. So we at least get Candor back partially now, but Dan, what did you think of Batman Superman number eight? I thought it was a really good issue. I mean, just coming off the steam of the last issue, I thought it was really cool. And, you know, for me, like I have a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of background in this whole storyline, you know, the, the original, I guess, lore of this city and everything. But uh, yeah, it was just really cool to see like all the action scenes with all the the, pe- the citizens attacking, you know, Zod and Raza Ghul and just a lot of action going on. And yeah, I, I really like this. This this book is definitely next to Detective. These these two books are probably my favorites that feature Batman. So. so- I mean, my question for you before we dive into Detective Comics is, are you going to stick with this? I'm going to stick with it. I think the next arc, I can't remember who the next artist is, but I know the next issue is Batman Superman fighting Atomic Skull, which would be pretty fun. Yeah, I'll stick with it. Yeah, it's it's drawn by Clayton Henry, and it's Atomic Skull and Ultra Humanite. All right. All right. Then I'm totally in. <laughs> but Detective Comics, Dan, take it away. Yeah, it's pretty sad. We live in an age now where Detective and Batman Superman are better books than the actual batman book but anyway detective comics number 1021 writer peter tomasi art by brad walker so the issue opens with two-face kind of like chanting or like giving orders in this group of people of like his supporters and we see like him talking about like eliminating like people that like aren't part of his vision or something pretty vague stuff going on here but we see like panels of catwoman and penguin being captured but I'm not sure if like they're actually killed or not because they have like guns pointing at their heads. So we don't really see them being killed. So I'm assuming they're not. But anyway, Batman visits the medical examiner to look at some of the victims of these attacks at, I think it was a hospital or something. And these guys were obviously working for Harvey Dent. So he is trying to get some information as to, you know, what their cause of death was, you know, anything going on with their underlying conditions. It turns out all these people that Two-Face has been recruiting are terminally ill people. You know, they have lung cancer, brain cancer, whatever. So they were willing to, you know, basically kill themselves for Two-Face's cause. They had like brain implants that would explode if they got captured, which is what we saw last issue. So Batman kind of traces back all the facial signatures of these people to the courthouse. And he's like, well, that's going to be my next stop. But as he's going in his Batmobile out of the cave, Two-Face runs into him right at the end of the cave. And is like, Bruce, I need your help. And Batman gets so close to like nearly running over Two-Face. And he tells him to get in. And Two-Face is like, I need your help. Like the Harvey Dent side of me is fighting the Two-Face side of me. And I need your help. And, Batman's like, all right, I'm going to help you by sending you right back to Arkham where you belong. 
but he's like, but first, let me stop at the courthouse, which the one thing I don't like about this issue is how he freaking decides to take Two-Face with him to the courthouse instead of dropping him off at Arkham like he probably should have. So Batman leaves Two-Face in the car, cuffed up, to go investigate the courthouse, and he finds this like area where all these like Two-Face supporters are. And just as he f- finds where that's at, Two-Face shoots him from behind because obviously he broke out of the car. And that's where our issue ends. Batman lies in his own blood, surrounded by all these supporters of Two-Face. So that's the only gripe I have with this issue is why in God's name does Batman not drop him off at Arkham first before he goes snooping around the basement of the courthouse? That's the only thing I have. Mike, I'm curious to see what you... I don't know. Vince, did you read this too or no? No, he skipped this this week. Okay. But uh, uh, the reason that happened is so we can have tension, so we can have the next issue, <laughs> so these make money. So that's the reason why. No, obviously, Catwoman and, and Penguin don't die. They're pivotal roles in Batman right now. Also, if you don't see the death, it never happened. They were just being captured. The the coins embedded in the, the cult of Two-Face's heads being exploding devices are pretty like creepy. Mm-hmm. So I liked Tomasi's handle on Harvey's personality fighting with Two-Face. We get the close-ups on Two-Face's head that's bleeding from the bullet wound from when he shot because he shot himself the last time Batman fought him, and that was in the Batman and Two-Face uh, run in the New 52 when uh, that it was Batman and Robin, but the book was like rotating like different guests. So this is obviously a sequel to that story, and the way it's looking is this will be the final Two-Face story for now, the way it's going to play out, but... Uh, I think he left him in the car thinking, well, this is Harvey. I'll be in here quick five minutes and we'll be out of here. But, you know, it like, what do you want me to say? Like, yeah, (laughs) yes. But is it a comic book? Do we have to have the story? Yes. I I will say Brad Walker's art continues to be really, really good on this series. This is reminding me a lot of the Alan Grant, Norm Brayfocal run that I love so much. I think it's a great blend of that and like the animated series. So if there's one Batman book you should be reading right now, it's Detective, where it's kind of evergreen, where you can jump right in wherever, and you'll just get a great Batman story, especially with him just really utilizing the detective aspect. We've had that really throughout uh, this arc, where he's doing a lot of detective work, setting stuff up, figuring out where to go next. So, yeah, I mean, Tomasi's a Batman master at this point. He's run, He's written well over 60 issues on Batman, what, regard, whether it be in different books at this point. So... I, I hope he doesn't leave the book. That's all I have to say. Like, I think I, I'd like to see this run keep going for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, it's good. All right. Moving over here to Falcon and Winter Soldier number two, writer Derek Landry, art by Federico Vincentini. I think that's how you say his name. Anyway, so Sam and Bucky are recovering from basically getting their asses kicked last issue by the natural. And the two of them get into an argument over whether they should have actually killed the guy. And we, you know, they get a little bit of commentary as to, you know, Sam telling Bucky that he shouldn't kill because then he'll be like Frank Castle and no one wants to be like Frank Castle. So they then kind of board a plane or not plane, a train to find out where um, their friend Veronica went, as well as look for uh, Zemo's like protege. That's kind of like 
behind all these killings. And on the train, they're ambushed by these undercover Hydra agents. Uh, so we get some interesting fight scenes with like teeth being knocked out and blood flying everywhere. Um, some really cool like colors going on with some of the fight scenes. A lot of like, you know, this issue read pretty fast. I mean, I read this issue probably in like five, ten minutes, maybe. And uh, there's a funny joke too. Like after they beat up everyone in this car, they like they're like, oh, I'm assuming there's more people like this in the other seven cars. So you see them go throughout all the other cars of the train, you know, beating the Hydra agents that have like all different weapons, like ninja stars and laser guns and stuff like that. And they finally reach the end of the train where they run into Zemo himself and, you know, stating that the Punisher uh, did not kill him. Because I guess that was the assumption earlier is that Zemo was killed by the Punisher and that was the end of him. So um, Zemo actually reveals to himself too that he's not the one who is behind all these killings, you know, that Sam and Bucky have been uncovering. So he actually says that it, it's his rival. So Zemo basically gives Bucky and Sam a proposition like, you know, help me help you so if you know if you help that me take down the natural i can help you get to my rival and we can both get what we want so the first step to that whole thing is by going to see the naturals parents in altoona pa the same city as one of our branch campuses for penn state so that's kind of cool and uh the parents answer the door and they're all dressed in captain america costumes and they're like we're your biggest fans and stuff like that so um, kind of interesting to see where this story goes. It's really interesting because the beginning of the issue made it sound like it was just going to be like a typical like get to Zemo and kill him or like get to whoever's behind us and do it. But they've thrown in a little bit of a wrench to this whole storyline, you know, with this whole visit to Altoona. So we'll see where that goes. But I'm not sure if I explained it exactly correctly, Mike. So I don't know if you want to correct me on anything, but I thought it was pretty good. What did you think? I, I didn't really like it. I was like the action was cool, but like I, I felt I felt like Bucky's been out of character this whole series, and the elements of Zemo are a little out of character too. This feels like it's definitely the book that's being put out because we have a TV show. Like the fact that Baron Zemo is also in that TV show coming out soon is like all right. I see we're we're just making a story. Like the other thing with the project, like I said last time. The, the natural is the same thing as like we just saw in the last Winter Soldier miniseries. I don't know where like this thing of Buck, uh, Bucky becoming like this kill happy guy was. That's not really ever been a thing. He doesn't like to do that, like, but he will. So him, him having it be like his first thing where Sam has to be like, don't kill everyone, just completely is out of character for me. I'm, I'm off this book. There's nothing really here making me stay other than the great action sequences, but yeah. Yeah, I'll say that definitely that action sequence was definitely the highlight of this of this issue for me. So I get you. All right, you guys get to hear my voice again for Fantastic Four Marvel Spotlight, or maybe it's called Marvel Spotlight Fantastic Four. Who knows? This is the Kurt Busick curated version and not the Alex Ross version, which is called Marvel. This issue is written by Evan Dorkin and Sarah Dyer. I've never heard of Sarah Dyer, I'm not sure who she is. Art by Benjamin Dewey, who I think I should definitely know, but also not super familiar with. 
Dorkin very, very, very rarely messes with superheroes. So this is, you know, one of the cases where it's very clear, like, it's not like an editor put him on this book. This is Kurt Busiek pulling the strings. And interestingly, this issue, and especially interesting because, again, Dorkin, you know, hasn't, you know, messed with superheroes much, especially in years and years and years. Like, he did some, like, weird work at Marvel in the 90s. Like, you think he did, like, the Bill and Ted comic or something like that? But um, so it's interesting and possibly Busiek's guidance that this issue is set around 2003. This is concurrent and references abound to Jeff John's run on Avengers with the Red Zone arc, Bendis's run on Daredevil with the hardcore with Typhoid Mary and stuff, the death of Jumbo Carnation from Grant Morrison's X-Men, who interestingly has is back alive and reappearing in Hickman's X-Men. And I wonder if, you know, Busiek knew that and you know, suggested, hey, include that specific reference, or if it's just coincidence. There's reference to X-Statics, which I get we were supposed to get some kind of X-Statics sequel miniseries or one-shot at some point. I don't know what the status of that is. And as far as the Fantastic Four, this would be concurrent with Mark Wade and Michael Ringo's run. And around the same time, you'd also have a short-lived Human Torch mini. Uh, I guess it was an ongoing. I think it only lasted like 12 issues, though. A Human Torch series launched around the same era, which was written by Carl Kiesel and drawn by uh, Scotty Young back when he was not 100% baby art. Well, that's not really true, but you know what I mean. The story here is Johnny Storm is going to his 10th high school reunion in Glenville, Long Island. And the focal character here is Dory, Doris, his high school sweetheart, and girlfriend. And she is not a retcon. She is a character from back in the day that, you know, appeared in the books. And she's being interviewed for a TV segment. And there's basically a T, these, uh, there's a camera, a camera person, a camera uh, dude, and a reporter. And they're kind of, you know, doing a story on this reunion and Johnny's past in Glenville. And they follow her around as like her shadow. And most of what's being referred to here to here is Johnny's solo run in Strange Tales, where he was dealing with stuff around his hometown separate from the Fantastic Four. And for people who are interested in checking some of that out, the best way to grab that is in this book right here, Human Torch and the Thing, Strange Tales, the Complete Collection, kind of unwieldy title. And we get reference to Pace Pot Pete's first appearance, which was in that book and not related to Spider-Man. The tryout fake Captain America, which Lee and Kirby did just to see what kind of letters they'd get and then decide whether they bring back Captain America in Avengers number four. And they go talk to Asbestos Man, who was one of the ridiculous villains of this era. And I feel like Dan makes jokes about Asbestos Man sometimes. Um, and he can chime in in a second. I yeah. don't know. I'm assuming, did he fight Iron Man one time or something? Or you just find it funny that he is named Asbestos Man? I just find it funny that he's like a villain of the uh, Human Torch because uh -huh. no, he, I think he was in Spider-Man comics. Yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, Spidey and Torch would hang out sometimes. And it's pretty interesting getting Dory's perspective as someone who was dating Johnny as he was becoming the Human Torch because he was like still in high school in the beginning of Fantastic Four, I, I guess, I think. I don't really remember the exact continuity and stuff but that you know that's ridiculous that the uh you know the high school brother went on the rocket ship ride 
and his with with his sister who shouldn't have really been on that thing either but dory's like yeah i was it was interesting i was essentially dating like a mix of a rock star a police officer and, and an astronaut and it was very stressful for her dating a superhero she had nightmares of him flaming on at the wrong moment and sometimes he would out of frustration and it's kind of funny because that nightmare the final panel the kind of conclusion of her nightmare it's basically the panel from Watchmen of the uh, two skeletons. And Johnny shows up for the reunion and he's kind of a dick and blowing everyone off and acting like a hot shot. And someone who's there calls him out and he's like an Afghanistan vet who lost some relatives in the red zone incident. And Johnny, you know, reacts to it as he can, but also still in this like hot shot character. And then party just dies and there's not really any story to report they didn't really get much but then they realize like this is kind of weird and so they follow dory when she leaves and it turns out that was all front essentially for the cameras and there's like a real serious heartfelt reunion with all of the people who actually grew up together and johnny is like a nice guy and in character and chill but then of course there's an ff signal in the sky which means he has to run off with the help of Lockjaw to save the world again. And I really enjoyed this. I thought the Benjamin Dewey art, like some panels, they're not great, but I think his storytelling is pretty solid. There's one double page splash where it's kind of like, it's supposed to be on a TV screen, like an animation type of thing. And it's a quick recap of Fantastic Four's origin and kind of like their premise. And that's a really cool page. And otherwise there's some kind of good acting moments. It's not like there's any, you know, there's no real action in this book or anything, but I thought it was a really wholesome, heartfelt, genuine story. And, and an interesting an interesting dive into continuity, both how it references the very, very old stuff and also how it's set in the middle of 2003 with tons of references and a nice cool kind of corner of Johnny Storm. I thought it was fine. I, I agree with the wholesome sentiment it had. I thought the pacing was a little slow in some areas. I thought this was actually going to end with him getting the bottle hit over his head that from like Civil War, but obviously we're a few years away from that. When you said 2003, it made me go, oh yeah, that's I guess that's where this takes place. I thought this was more right around Civil War time, but yeah, it was fine. It was an interesting creative team. I thought it flowed well, but I, th I thought the pacing was a little lacking that really made it like I made me cohesively love it. I think it was pretty slow, honestly. Uh, Vince, you just uh, made me like a hundred times more interested in reading that uh, Strange Tales collection I have now. So, well, <laughs> I'll kill your interest by saying it's not that good. <laughs> They're pretty boring stories, and Stanley and Jack Kirby are like very minimally involved. It's mostly Larry Lieber and Dick Ayers. It's basically—I I think you've read a lot of Silver Age Ant-Man. It's basically like—it's basically like that. What are, you talking about? what are you trying to say about Silver Age Ant-Man? It sucks. I, do. I like it. Well, that that you go into it expecting that. Okay, fair enough. All right, Immortal Hulk, number 33, Al Ewing writing, Joe Bennett on the main story, Nick Patara on the Mindscape sequence. Uh, this is, I think, the third issue in a row where you've got a different artist on a different sequence, whether it be in the Hulk's head or there's a dreamscape. I guess that's a way to help Joe Bennett a little bit, but I mean, this art hasn't really taken a hit anywhere though. The Hulk is working together with his team 
and the other aspects of his mind inside himself to basically put himself back together to confront Zemu. And we see the Minotaur get eaten partially by Zemu. And it's one of the most horrifyingly disgusting things that this book has delivered. He doesn't, he gets like partially devoured. So he's like, he's kept alive in like horrifying fashion. He's just like this pile of goo on the floor. That's just talking flesh at this point by the end of the, of Zemu gets done with them. The Hulk with the help of Rick Jones is able to unleash his planet Hulk persona to destroy Zemu. They do go and confront him in this issue and they do beat him. So uh, they live to fight. So team Hulk lives to fight another day. Rick Jones is good friends with Hulk, except Rick is talking while talking to Dario after the Hulk leaves reveals that he is still part of his master plan. And it's revealed that Rick Jones is really the leader in disguise and has been kind of the whole part whole time since they've brought uh, Rick Jones back from the dead. So the, so it's kind of like that heartbreaking moment of, it's it's because the Hulk's talking about how great of a friend Rick Jones is, but his biggest villain is literally right underneath his nose. Another great like I think this was Joe Bennett's one of his best issues, just like some great some great landscape sequences of the fight, but just horrifyingly like there's the moment when Bruce turns back into the Hulk, he like literally bursts out of Bruce's mouth and just throws his flesh on the floor. It's disgusting but cool. Basically, just John Carpenter's the thing on steroids, as it's been the whole time. But hey, Immortal Hulk, it's great. Punisher Soviet number six. This wraps up the mini series. Garth Ennis, Jason Burroughs, and a very brutal ending to the story. Frank forces Prochenko's boys to dig a grave for Valerie, and then just after they do that, he just cold blooded murders them in front of it. So, and then he goes to the senator's house to confront Prochenko and the senator after he finds out from the. Pacheco's wife that they were working in tandem together and the senator was selling out secrets. So, and because Pacheco sat behind a desk his whole time in the military and hasn't really done anything ever, uh, Frank forces uh, Pacheco to tie the senator down and skin him alive. And uh, you get to see every part of that. And it's horrifying. <laughs> uh, he's like throwing up over himself and you, uh, it's, it's grisly and disgusting. And uh, he just leaves when it's done. And as the FBI agents are coming in and basically saying, yeah, if you can say the Punisher made me do it, but that's not going to do anything for you in court, leaving with the Franks going to Moscow to have a drink at Val- at Valerie's. He has a shot of vodka and it's his fir- he says it's his first drink since 1976. And uh, basically he has a shot to remember him and goes on his merry way as he's internal monologuing about how Perchenko's uh, using the insanity defense but really it's not going to work do him any good they're still probably going to put him to death so like no one really won like i guess frank won but like it's just like this horribly sad just ending which you know punisher max gives you like yeah frank won but like there's still a lot of more horrible shit out there but uh this was always good me and vince have talked about it every single time it's Garth Ennis. He's a master of what he does. And it's always amazing. Jason Burroughs. I hope we see him again on Punisher because it looks really, really good. I hope this is not the end for this collaborative team, but I know that there's more Punisher Max from Ennis on the way. Eventually. I know there's another miniseries planned, but I don't know if Burroughs is going to be the artist on it. Vince, you missed this issue, but definitely go back and read this one because it was really good. Yeah, I missed it. Uh, it sounds uh, delightful. I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, I'll just say one last time, having not read this issue, Burroughs is 
perfect with Garth Ennis, perfect with the Punisher. I mean, I'm pretty sure, I, I probably said this when we read the first issue, but I think Burroughs co-created Crossed with Ennis, maybe. But Burroughs, he, he was kind of stuck in that kind of Avatar grindhouse corner until like just now. Well, until Moon, Moon Knight, I think, was the breakout book at Marvel. But like he did those like weird Lovecraft rape comics with Alan Moore. Um, but like skinning him alive, I'll definitely have to read this issue. Um, I think the next Punisher miniseries is with Goran Parlov, and it might be another Vietnam story. I think uh, Burroughs is the is the best blend possible between Parlov and why can I not remember the Dylan? Yeah, the, I think it's the great marriage between Parlov and Steve Dillon. Yeah, I can def. I mean, you can definitely see a lot of. I don't know that you know he looks similar, but you 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 get that Steve Dillon energy and some of the same texture and stuff. I think the, the energy is definitely in the action and the faces, but you're but on the same on the action side, I think Burroughs delivers on the Parlov action and framing of the pages. Yeah, but I did read this, and I think I'm the only one. Yes, who uh, read this? And I'm gonna say, I mean, it depends on if you guys are give a fuck about Empire, but I really enjoyed this issue. Um, this is written by Robbie Thompson with art. So lots of pieces of this issue are flashback or like backstory. And really what would be more accurate to call this issue, if it wasn't leading into an event, is you could call this a Meet the Scrolls special. If you recall, I think literally at the very beginning when we started the show in a slightly different form, I think that's around when I read the miniseries Meet the Scrolls by Robbie Thompson. And I, I enjoyed it a little bit. I felt by the end, it wasn't quite the premise that I was expecting and hoping, but it had fun moments. And I'm pretty certain that that series was drawn by Javier Rodriguez, who does a lot of the, of the flashback stuff in this issue. So there's the connection there to Meet the Scrolls. And there's also the connection to history of the Marvel Universe, which was the next thing he drew. Um, and that's pretty recent, and I was a big fan of that series. And I guess he's being, I don't know, possibly assisted on some of those sequences by Alvaro Lopez. I couldn't really tell which pages or the division on that. But the present set stories, the present set parts of the issue are drawn by or illustrated by Mattia de Ayulis, which is definitely pronounced wrong. But that is the guy or maybe it's woman i don't even know from based on that name that is the artist who has done the recent jessica jones series with kelly thompson so a very photorealism style but like kind of like with a mix of uh like kind of reminiscent kind of similar style to mikhail Jannon, sort of but this is about the warner family of scrolls they were kind of the uh the 1950s nuclear family in disguise and at the end of the last series spoilers the father died the sister who they thought was dead or missing was found alive but she's kind of messed up and they are they've been continuing to work for the scroll empire and kind of doing underground missions and investigating the stuff especially with related to how they were betrayed earlier and they're doing one of these missions and they find a leaf and this leaf allows us to have a history of the scroll empire and how initially the scrolls were peaceful and they had an empire, but the way they would do it is they'd show up on a planet and be like, here's a bunch of like technology, just like follow what we say. And one uh, day 
the Scroll Emperor got to the planet Hala. And Hala at that time had two dominant species. It had the Kree and the Kotadi. And the scroll was like, you know, who's going to be in charge and who's going to take orders from us? We're going to give you guys a contest. We're going to put you on a moon and we're going to put you on a moon and we're going to give you a bunch of technology and leave you alone. And just whoever makes something really cool, you know, we're going to put you in charge of our puppet state. And the Kree were placed on Earth. And that's kind of sort of how the Inhumans came came to be. I, I, or not on Earth, on Earth's moon. Actually, I think that part's wrong. I'm getting it mixed up with another part of the story. But they kind of go parallel, and they, are, they both have different perspectives on how to build civilization, how to compete. But the Kree are kind of anxious and jealous that maybe they're going to lose in the judgment. So they just go to war, and they slaughter a lot of the Kotadi, and then they even turn on the scrolls, who again were a peaceful race. And so that is the start of the endless Kree Scroll War, which eventually reached its way to Earth in the Roy Thomas, Neil Adams, etc. epic, the Kree Scroll War. And then we also get mention of the Celestial Messiah, which was supposed to be kind of the the uh, the potential end of the war. It's the result of a perfect human female in a Katati, and that's Mantis and Steve Englehart's run on Avengers, the uh, Celestial Madonna saga. And the child Sequoia, the Celestial uh, Messiah, then tangled with Thanos in the Celestial Quest miniseries. And these two books are collected together nowadays, or at least sometimes. And that's where the history stops there. And then a Kree agent blows up the Warner's hotel room. But it turns out that the daughter who had survived and they found at the end of the last series, she's really good with her shape-shifting. So she turns into like a giant monster and eats them, uh, which protects them. And they decrypt the message from Hulkling, who they know is part Kree and part scroll. But it's it's literally just the part of the message like, hey, it's Hulkling. And then it gets corrupted and stuff. So they move on and they just assume, oh, it's, it's his Kree side. He's up to some shenanigans. And then it becomes this interesting thing where the different daughters are talking to their mom, like, you know, like, like, what, what's the fucking point of the Kree Scroll War? Like, why do we have to fight each other? Why is it a big deal? We could just not kill this kill this dude that tried to blow us up. And we get an origin of Hulkling, and then the trial of the Phoenix. Uh, if you recall, in the Phoenix arc, the Dark Phoenix arc, all of these representatives from all these different alien races show up to for the judgment and a Kree agent and a scroll agent just fought on the moon instead of like showing up to the trial they just saw each other and started fighting and they just fought over and over and over and Uatu's like all right this is stupid but like whoever wins this fight eventually will just declare the Kree scroll war ended and they'll win and it'll be a lot less lives lost even though they're still fighting in the background and eventually that they basically, like, whenever someone was like, why are you guys fighting? Or, like, they got involved in something else, they'd team up so that they could continue fighting. And they kind of just chilled out after a certain uh, while. And then the war was over, but then it wasn't over. And those two characters are covered a lot more in Incoming, the one-shot, the parts relevant to Empire, that is. Um, and one of them was killed in that issue. So then in the end of this issue, the mom busts into the Kree house to kill them. Uh, 
and she sees that it's like a nuclear family, just like her, just like her family, which has, you know, her husband was killed. And then they all get the transmission from Hulkling that the Kree scroll war is over. The forces are united and they're heading toward earth. And that's of course where, you know, the actual big story will be picked up. And I have no idea how these characters will factor in at all. And then there's an interesting back page, which says to go read basically all the books I held up plus young Avengers and a little part of John Burns, fantastic four. And I really enjoyed this. It was great. I like the art from all the artists involved here and it, they're incorporated in an, in an interesting way, kind of switching off pages. This book, as I essentially said, is like half history of the Marvel universe. And then half like some like interesting, I don't want to get political or something, but it's almost like an Israel Palestine type of stuff. I, this was a lot of fun and I will see if empire is remotely similar or touches on some of these ideas. I'm assuming you guys don't have anything to say about the issue you didn't read. X-Men number nine. This is Jonathan Hickman and Lionel Yu is actually drawing this issue. And I believe this picks up from the last issue of X-Men directly. And what's funny, especially since I'm talking about it right after the last issue that I talked about, we jump into this book on Hala way back in time. So kind of another history of the Marvel Universe, couple pages with the Kree and they've just discovered the brood. And they're tampering with the species just as they did with the Kree, just as they did with humans to create the inhumans. And they decide to create the king egg. And the idea, which is explained in full later, is that the brood, they're a matriarchal hive species, like bees or something like that. And so there's a, there's a queen brood. And all the other brood, they all share a hive mind and they all do exactly what the queen wants and they move as a unit. But this king egg, if there's a brood king all of a sudden, like a one in one million, then the brood queens are subjected to that king. And that's like the worst thing ever for them. So if there's ever this king egg is like a total wild card. So like if you were to plant a king egg, in your enemy's base, the brood would just annihilate them because they will do anything, uh, stop stopping at no cost to make sure that this king brood is not born and subjugate them. And that's where we pick up with the, we pick up eight millennia later. Well, actually no, the, um, the world mind of the Kree says, yeah, it's gonna take like eight millennia for a society to be able to rival the Kree and in order that we'd have to use this weapon. So go ahead and create the weapon. And it's interesting that the, the potential rivals include the scroll, of course, and back to the previous issue, the Badoon, Badoon usually associated with the Guardians of the Galaxy, the Shi'ar, which I'll get into, the Kotadi, again, last issue I talked about. And interestingly, the last one mentioned is Galador, which is where Rom is from. And Galador and basically everything about Rom is Marvel canon and totally legal except for Rom himself, which is, it's just so weird. Um, it's the same thing as Bug, who is, you know, has been with the Guardians in more modern times, is from the Micronauts, but they don't own the actual Micronauts. And so then in the present, oh, and the most likely target is the Shi'ar. So we pick back up with the X-Men running away in a spaceship with the egg to into Shi'ar space to figure out what's going on, while Gladiator is interrogating uh, the Star Jammers, and he has 
Sunspot and Cannonball on the line, trying to figure out what's going on with the egg. Gladiator takes down, he busts in with his son, takes down the accuser. There's a great panel with speed lines for a big Superman punch. And then everyone meets up, crashes on a planet, running from the brood, lots of fighting panels. And it explains the whole lore of the king egg that I got into. And then in the end, the twist here is that Brew, the mutant, intelligent, one-of-a-kind brood, eats the egg. And I guess that makes him the brood king. So I guess the entire race of the brood are sort of like on the X-Men's side. And that is a very crazy, huge status quo shift that, you know, would would never think of. Um, and very interesting to see how that goes on. Yeah, it was, it was good. I thought that the ending with Brew becoming like the king of the brood was a little bit of a kind of a shocking, oh, I didn't expect to go there with that. But I, I don't have much to say on X-Men. So little happens between issue to issue that it's like hard to talk about. Also, like I'm not the biggest fan of like the ancient histories of all these alien races in the Marvel Universe. I kind of get bored sometimes when we go go to space in the Marvel Universe. So like, See, I'm just jerking off this whole time. Yeah, I I know you were, but like, I, there there are times like kind of when the X Men go to space, I kind of get bored. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this series in particular, X Men by Hickman, it feels very stilted, and some of that like you know there were a little bit of delays, but it's like every issue is like, here's a plot, and then like. It, there's kind of a disconnect between issues, even when it's an arc like this. But every other issue, or basically every other like idea, which there have been very few continuing plots in this, it's mostly one shots. Everything is just so insane and like sci-fi that I, I I go back and forth. I ping pong on my thoughts on this issue. I mean, on this series. Yeah. It, it, it's a weird series. Like I say, the, I don't think there's been any bad issues at all. It's just, it's very heavy, deep into sci-fi. And I think it's the, it's the biggest departure we've ever seen for an X-Men book. So if you don't like Hickman sci-fi, you're probably not going to enjoy this. So knowing that, I know when did the decorum come out two, one or two weeks ago, like that was him in space with very, very heavy sci-fi. I didn't like it. Like now it's for me, it's teetering on that, level of are you going super sci-fi with it because if you are i'm not going to enjoy that but like if you go back to earth where it's the where it's the x-men trying to fight the other anti-mutants uh more with that but i don't know like it's not bad it's good lionel use art was good here uh he drew some pretty horrifying looking brood so that's always a plus yep giant size x-men nightcrawler this is the second of the relaunched giant size line i thought the second one of these books was supposed to be magneto i guess that one got pushed back or something or because i thought the second one was supposed to be magneto but this is nightcrawler this is jonathan hickman and alan davis on the story alan davis on the art story is called haunted mansion we see kurt magic Eyeboy, cypher and lockheed investigating the original x mansion because they're getting strained readings out there and kurt starts to start to see people in the mansion like he sees warpath for a second and then he sees Rachel Summers, but like Rachel Summers looking like the way she did in her Excalibur days with the, like the, the spike costume all over. So they take off to try to follow Rachel, but it opens a portal and Doug stupidly jumps into the portal. And it turns out that these bug creatures that have overtaken the mansion, they're called the Sidri, which I think Vince, I've heard of them before. 
there's something to them. And Doug finds Lady Mastermind is amongst them, and they rescue Lady Mastermind, and they bring her back to Krakoa, and they strike a deal with the Sidri going, hey, you guys can have the mansion if we can safely use the Krakoan portals back and forth, and they work out that deal. I thought this is strangely hard to follow. Like, I don't, I didn't know what really was going on here. The Alan Davis art was good. I don't know why this was about Nightcrawler, though. He was, this is more about Cypher, really, than anyone else. Yeah, that's kind of been how both of these has, for a second, I was trying to figure out whether this is the third one, but I think you're right. This is the second. I know Magneto was supposed to be before this, or maybe Mag- Magneto got moved. Um, ben Oliver there was scheduling conflicts or maybe he had an injury or something. So he's not even doing the issue, uh, but it did get moved for that. But yeah, the last issue, if you recall, was Jean Grey and Emma Frost and felt kind of more like a storm issue. Or I, I, I disagree on that. It was definitely about, it was about Jean Grey and Emma Frost inside of storm's head. I think we read, did we read storm? I don't know. <laughs> Never mind. No, it was called, it was called giant says Jean Grey and Emma Frost. Yeah, I swore we read one in between, but this was interesting. I mean, this is kind of like really more a vehicle for Alan Davis. And it's nice to see him draw Nightcrawler, obviously, through Excalibur. And also, I think his Lockheed is really fun. And that also brings up the question of like, you know, when the hell does this take place? In spite of the attempted reading order at the back, Lockheed, like, you know, shouldn't exactly be here right now. I don't know. Yeah. And also interesting, back to Alan Davis, is that this issue, it looks like it may have been Marvel style or something similar because Davis is credited with story as well. And I can't imagine that they wasted Alan Davis's time like telling him the ins and outs of every single thing that's been going on in Dawn of X. So I wonder if Hickman was like, here's what we got to do. And Alan Davis is like, I've been drawing comics longer than you've been alive. Let me just do the whole thing and you can script it. Yeah, it's, it's a cypher story, and there's the quote-unquote big reveal here, even though we saw it in a previous issue of New Mutants, I believe, is that Warlock is fully, like, separate. He's able to be fully separated from Doug, but it's a secret for some reason. And the Sid, the Sidri aliens, you may recall from Uncanny X-Men number 154, way back, uh, Claremont era. Oh, yeah. That's the second, during the second Dave Cockrum stretch. Um, you also see iBoy here, so it's interesting to see a lot of these, you know, C and D tier characters incorporated when it, you know, makes sense based on their powers and everything. And then there's some kind of fan servicey moments. We see Thunderbird in shadow, and then we see Rachel Hound. And then besides the warlock thing, the big deal is that they found Lady Mastermind. So ultimately, that was the purpose of this issue. His lady mastermind is on Krakoa now, which to me doesn't mean shit. Yeah, like I don't care. Like, uh, was that supposed to be a big thing? Like, I, I don't know who that was. All right. So I was actually kind of surprised. Um, I did enjoy Hellions a bit. This is written by Zeb Wells, art by Steven Segovia. We start off here with basically introducing all of our main cast members and why they're in this book. To cut to the chase, the concept here is basically Mr. Sinister setting up a suicide squad. And Havoc, the only character on this team that I care about, he's out on a mission with Wolverine and some other characters doing something. And he goes a little overboard. He like fries the shit out of some people. 
injures them mortally, doesn't technically kill anyone, but he, he, he goes overboard. And then the thesis of this book through the text pages and crap are essentially that some mutants are just fucked up. And we see Empath, who controls people's emotions, as his name very literally explains. He is not a telepath, and you think he'd be way weaker and less effective than a telepath, but he's just fucked up in the head. So he's like making people fight each other and then making, and like one of his teammates comes over and is like, don't do that. That's messed up. And then he makes his teammate like get turned on by it sort of. And then we get to meet Nanny and Orphan Maker, who are some of the weirdest characters in X-Men lore. They're, they have this twisted relationship where they like kill parents that they deem as being not good parents so that they can then abduct the children. It's very strange. And they have like this weird, like mother daughter relationship kind of thing. But Nanny is totally a man. It's, it's very strange. And then there's Kyle Gibney, AKA wild child who he's just like, it's kind of like a werewolf, but he's not a werewolf. He's just fucking insane and just wants to murder people. But he's had his, He's had a few stretches of kind of being sort of a good guy. He was on, well, not a good guy, but he was on X Factor in the late 90s and also the Weapon X team book in the 2000s. And then there's Scalp Hunter, who's chilling on the beach when a bunch of Morlocks led by Callisto attack him because it's the anniversary of the mutant massacre, which actually lines up with a quick reference in Giant Size Nightcrawler which just further makes me question like, okay, does this issue take place before Kitty and Lockheed got thrown overboard or is it after she's back? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. So all of these characters, including Havoc are essentially put on trial and the Krakoan council figure out, Hey, what are we going to do? And obviously Cyclops is like, Whoa, my brother's in the back of the lineup. This is, uh, you know, complicated. And Havoc kind of questions, he's, he says something like, I think I'm still messed up. And I think that might be referring way back to Axis, you know, when he was inverted. Um, I don't know what else it would be. And I know he, I know he never like fully, fully recovered from that or, or they're bringing it back. And Sinister's like crazy ass idea, guys. What if the expression of mutations is the birthright of a mutant. And everyone's like, uh, yeah, that makes sense. That's like a Kukoa thing. Even if they're like brutal, psychopathic murderers. And so Sinister's like, all right, give me these people as a like team, basically like X-Force, but they're all psychopaths. And this will be their therapy. I'll let them kill people and break things. You know, it's, it's again, like the X-Men being kind of sinister pun intended and ultimately this book should be called marauders because sinister is in charge scalp hunter is on the team and that is referenced here they it's not like they ignore that and then scott installs quanin as his inside agent to watch on his brother and also just in general sinister up to some shit and their first mission is to go to the x the essex orphan uh, orphanage, which is where Scott and Alex grew up, and what you know, it's called Essex. Mr. Sinister was secretly in charge of it. And underneath the orphanage, there's like this fucked up genetic lab 
and they're supposed to destroy that and trash it. And Madeline Pryor is under the lab chilling with the rest of the Marauders. And of course, the Marauders' first mission via retcons, as led by Gambit via retcons, was to kill Madeline Pryor, who of course is uh, a product of Mr. Sinister. You didn't read this, did you? Nope. I think this, it, it, it leans way more than I thought into X-Men lore and uh, history and everything like that. And all the characters are kooky enough that and, uh, and handled well by Zeb Wells that it's not really annoying. It's, it's pretty entertaining. And I like this. This is definitely a worthwhile replacement to Fallen Angels, which for the moment is kind of how it's being seen. Because Fallen Angels dropped, and this got this was the first one to get added in, right? And um, Quinnen is also you know on this team, so uh, I feel like maybe Sinister was involved with that, but I don't even remember. But this is definitely an upgrade over Fallen Angels, and uh, I think I'll read the second issue. But who knows? Because there's too many X Men issues, and I didn't even read all the ones that I wanted to read this week. So Wolverine number two. I'll say before I start, the only X Men book. I'm probably going to add is X Factor. I'm going to read the first issue of that and see how that goes. But yeah, this line is bloated. Wolverine number two, Ben Percy, Adam Kubert. This is picking up the A story from that double-sized first issue that was basically the first two issues of one, dealing with the Krakoan pollen drugs and the Pale Girl. The Pale Girl managed to actually mind control Logan at the end of that first story, and he did in fact kill all of his teammates on North, which was like, oh, okay, Wolverine immediately mind controlled and killed it everyone and like he has like this moment with scott and is like i swear i'm gonna bring everyone back i'm sorry what i did to gene i i think ben percy's leaning in a little bit too much into the aspects of oh well I just can kill anyone and we can bring him back because i think he's done it a lot at this point where it's a little grating at this point but the cia agent jeff gets word of the more sightings of the pale girl and what it's doing to people it's like basically making people like kill and maim themselves so he decides to go off the grid with this investigation and brings in Logan for help. And while on a boat, Logan's eyes turn red and he kills Jeff. And it turns out the pale girl is still under control of Logan. And now he's taken a human life. So is Logan going to end up at the bottom of Krakoa? Cause he should, he just murdered someone, but you know, mind control shenanigans, very weird second issue for Wolverine. Like, everything's good but i'm just I, I thought adam kubert's art was good too not as good as the first issue but yeah this is a very weird like first issue like, oh well sorry very weird second issue very weird first story to go with a wolverine title it doesn't feel like a wolverine book but yeah it's good i i if the third issue is not i'm imagining the third issue is going to be like the vampire story with omega red and it's going to be switching off i'm more interested in that one but because i don't really I'm not really interested in the pale girl stuff. I also imagine that the easy scapegoat here is Jeff's daughter who has cancer, who may or may not be a mutant uh, waiting for the mutant drugs. She might be the pale girl and she might've done all of this, or she's going to get word that Wolverine killed her dad. So she's going to hate Wolverine. I see a lot of things that I've kind of seen before going out of this, but it's okay. I guess like nothing special. It, we'll, wait, we'll wait and see what happens on it, but that's the show in terms of books. So. My pick of the week is going to be Road to Empire, Kree Scroll War. But honestly, uh, and as was kind of clear on the show, I didn't get to read most of the books that I would have otherwise. But I'll say every single book I read, I think, 
I really, really enjoyed. So this was one of the strongest weeks. And from what it from what it sounds, a lot of the books that I didn't get to, I probably would really enjoy as well. Um, so it was kind of a tight race. I think it was a better week than last week in terms of what my pick of the week is going to go to Punisher Soviet number six. A really great cap off to a great mini series, and I hope to see Punisher Max return again soon. Dan, if you're there, it's time to make a pick of the week. If not, I'm going to decide for him. Dan chooses Detective Comics. That's his pick of the week. Everyone, have a good night. And stay safe. Watch your hands. <laughs>